Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. In the golden years of animation, starting in the 30s and going into the late 40s, there was a big call for animated shorts. Little fun clips that would play between reels that would give you a quick frisson of delight or a little chuckle. Disney produced shorts that either featured their flagship character, one Mickey Mouse, or a series called Silly Symphonies, where wacky antics of bullfighters, monkeys, or dancing trees would occur along with classical music or popular tunes of the day. Although they could be zany, these movies were fairly tame for the most part. But if your sense of humor skewed zanier, and let's be honest, more violent, the Warner Brothers' Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes were what you were waiting to come up on the screen. Today, we're going to look at two movies, one animated, one live action, that draw from the zanier slapstick era of not just animated movies, but the classic slapstick comedy that seems out of place for the time they were released. Alicia, this is your episode. You champion these movies so hard, and I was so glad to watch them. And I feel like this is a style that you would be so into when it comes to comedy, especially given how much you love these movies. Yeah, I didn't grow up with either of these films, though, and that's very important, I think, for this episode. Um, I had never heard of Cats Don't Dance until Rochelle Charcot had shown it at the Royal in Toronto maybe three years ago. I have no sense of time. It could have been three months ago. I guess not. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, what is that? And like kind of read about it. And as we're going to talk about it, it was really buried. Um, and then Mouse Hunt. I mean, oh my God, this was my revelation of the early part of the pandemic when we were all just watching as much content as we could. Um, I had noticed that there were these really amazing virtual uh, screening programs that the UCLA was putting on and a lot of um, kind of independent cinematics in New York. And, you know, they'd have the new Romer restoration and, you know, the Wong Kar Wise had come out at that point. And then all of a sudden, like multiple of them showed Mouse Hunt along with these films. And I was like... (laughs) What? Like, and I, I could picture the VHS cover. It's like, you know, the little mouse with the olive and mm-hmm. Nathan Lane. I was like, why is a mouse hunt screening with Pasolini? And then I <laughs> watched it and I was like, oh my God, like, this is a masterpiece. Like, where was this film? I guess I was like 13. So it's not, I was a little, yeah. that cusp of like, yes, I loved watching Disney's Hercules and stuff, but I was kind of aging out of, of classic animation and G rated films um but i've watched mouse hunt probably eight times in the interim like since seeing it the first time and i is it because of the evil cat although we're gonna no. get to it is it because of the evil cat no it, it, it's really not i mean that is, it is there's a cat named catzilla in this um obviously if you have a mouse film you're gonna have an evil cat it's not that it's mm-hmm. it's just how it harkens back to laurel and hardy and how it engages with classic comedy and does the slapstick which a lot of the reviewers hated the slapstick and failed to notice the nuance and the message of the film um and how it engages with animation history even though it's not animated i mean you know you brought up mickey mouse that guy has no personality like the idea that this empire was launched with mickey mouse who displaced oswald the lucky rabbit and mickey i mean tell me one thing that mickey is i guess affable is that he is a steamboat captain, and that is the I'm most sure. anyone can aspire like a to. Year, yeah, but like <laughs> Donald Duck has a personality. Goofy has a personality, and it's like actually like acknowledged in his character name. All the other characters in Disney's <laughs> canon of the original animated characters have personalities. Mickey is just milk toast, and so I love that Mouse Hunt kind of gave gave the prominence to a, a mouse character that then engages with Christopher Walken. Then, like, <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. We're going to get into it. But these are films I didn't grow up with. I <laughs> totally see how they were made for me, both as a 13-year-old and as a 38-year-old. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I want to, I'm just, I, I think I'm Mouse Hunt's biggest fan. I have a t-shirt. 
Um, I and I know wow. with a generation that's younger than me. So like I'm a I'm a the oldest generation of millennial. I'm 83. So kids born in more like 19, let's say 1989, 1990. This is their jam. Everyone that I've talked to about mouse hunt who's that age is like, oh hell yes. And I'm like, interesting. Okay, this is I just missed this generation of mouse hunters. These are also both movies, as I mentioned earlier, that are very much out of time. Like we don't make movies. We weren't making movies like this then. We definitely are making movies like this now. And so to see these in 1997, I'm like, these are movies that maybe you would see in like the I don't know. I mean, these like 30s, 40s. Like that's what it feels like. It's not. It's all. I'd also say too what you're saying, Alicia. They're both weird. They're both like movies I think are good, but I also can say that they don't quite hit either audience correctly. You know, like they're not quite kids, not quite adults, yeah, yeah. but in a way that I I think still works. Yeah. But I could see how like I could see how you could sit the wrong kid or adult in front of either of these, and they'd be like, "What the hell I, is I going on?" I think they also made by two directors: Mark Dindle for Cats Don't Dance and mm-hmm. Cor Verbinski in really one of his earliest films um, for Mouse Hunt. Made by two directors who understood subversiveness in comedy, subversiveness mm. in action films, subversiveness in animation. Um, and so, I mean, I, I love, I, I think I saw Rango well before I saw Mouse Hunt. And I remember thinking mm. like, oh, this is unusual and fantastic. And that's Gore Verbinski's big you know, other animated film, but CGI. Mm-hmm. Um, I I get it. Like, I think as much as, Becky, you're talking about these being out of step with time. And Cam, you're saying they don't quite match and like it's like a a little bit of a square peg yeah. in a round hole that's me as a person <laughs> as a cinephile as like, a critic yes come on like, you're like that's just that's just who i am and i'm not surprised that both of these films hit really hard and i'm not sure at 13 i would have understood the references to laurel hardy the references to charlie chaplin the references to gene kelly the references to shirley temple maybe shirley temple um you know, all of the cameos we're going to talk about in Cats Don't Dance, I would have only known them from Animaniacs and from mm-hmm. classic Looney Tunes, I think. Totally. Okay, well, let's get uh, into our first movie today. And uh, Alicia, it was perhaps a bit of a miscalculation on how much kids love golden era Hollywood references <laughs> and Scott Bakula. But Cats Don't Dance was a big investment from the onset, even recruiting one of Hollywood's most iconic classic Hollywood performers to consult on the movie's dance numbers. After Turner's short-lived animation studio was acquired by Warner Brothers mid-production, well, it's often compared to the Iron Giant in terms of quality of film versus bungling of the release. The main reason why people have heard of this movie today is because of its repetitive playing on the Cartoon Network during their youth, and it's become sort of a winky in-the-know gag for animators. In fact, in an episode of Teen Titans Go, which is one of my small person's favorites, the character of Beast Boy explains VHS to modern kids using video cassettes of both Iron Giant and Cats Don't Dance. Now, Alicia, I know you picked this one because of your curation of non-evil cat movies, but Cam, do you feel this holds up on its own, like a especially in the face of it being yeah. released opposite Disney's Hercules. Oh yeah. I, I definitely think I, I can kind of understand that, like why maybe it didn't connect, but I do think it's mostly just a botch release mm-hmm. on the part of the distributors. Like you find out things. I mean, my favorite, I'll just burn my good facts. <laughs> uh, they <laughs> did like no merchandising. And in fact, the only merchandise you can get from Casto Dance was from a, a kid's meal at Subway. Yeah. <laughs> which when is I like, Googled, what the I Googled hell? photos of them. I was like, oh, yeah, because yeah, I lived in Los Angeles in 97. Mm. And I was like, I remember those. And I remember, I had a vague memory of being a kid and being like, what the hell film is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And I definitely think, like, to to their credit, I do remember the Subway Kids Pack kind of being a thing. But yeah. anyway, it's like, it was yeah. The round so I think bun, it's, it's right? not you got a round bun yeah, sandwich. Yes, you got... yes, a tiny sandwich. <laughs> like a milk or a pop. It's... And then I think it came with, uh, oh, there was some dessert. But yes. So we sound like such ancient people <laughs> talking about this. We used to get a lump of coal <laughs> and a round Subway. Uh, Cam, yeah. before we get too uh, far into the, the, <laughs> and the, what are we talking about? Like um, um, the archives of Subway <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, anyway, that's us, all I have to say. Perfect. Give us a Subway plot. Subway is the pathetic merchandise. <laughs> They're cute toys. Yes. Uh, Give us a plot line. They're, They're cute, toys. cute toys. Give us a plot line, The, pl- <laughs> the plot line is, as you said, uh, Scott Bakula, Quantum Leap himself, uh, is Danny, uh, the song and dance cat, who uh, moves from Kokomo, Indiana, 
to the uh, bright lights of Hollywood, which is pretty much the Hollywood we know. It's kind of a Looney Tunes version where animals and humans, anthropomorphic animals, it should be said, and humans live side by side. Danny thinks he's just going to make it, uh, but he does not know the deep-seated prejudices of Hollywood uh, where uh, animal performers are allowed to be in the background, but they are not allowed to be stars and they're definitely not allowed to sing and dance as he wants to. Um, so instead, uh, he accidentally, uh, gets the ire of a, a child star, Darla Dimples, uh, <laughs> who is a, a fun, evil version of Shirley Temple, who is especially prejudiced against cats. Who and, has and the greatest sidekick animals. named Max, who has one of my yeah. favorite a- yes. animation character trips yeah. where they have a huge top half and a tiny bottom half. Shaped like a coffin. Yes. Like, yes. A, yes. like yes. a traditional, like, you know. Like Nosferatu coffin. <laughs> yes, yes. Being essentially the like Eric von Stroheim guy yeah. from uh, Sunset yeah. Boulevard, yeah. Uh, but but a giant monster <laughs> version. Uh, uh, yeah. So essentially, he he keeps getting tricked by Darla, but he really believes that if if they put on a show that's good enough, they can get in, and it's essentially him working uh, with a, a plucky little penguin uh, to to convince all the animals who are jaded in Hollywood, uh, including Sawyer, who's a, a, a sexy lady cat, um, to to try again, to try to show how great they are as performers and convince uh, the people that are prejudiced against them that they, they could be stars too. Oh, does this all at all sound a bit like African-Americans in Hollywood or perhaps yeah. any other There's reason? a minstrel scene. Well, There's totally yeah. a minstrel scene, oh, yeah. Yeah. which I, but I will, think is amazing. Uh, I also think that this has the problem of 90s stuff where it doesn't, it's not quite specific yeah. enough. Yeah. It, it's like, it's like, instead, it's like, let's talk about the concept of prejudice yeah. and kind of that like neoliberal idea of like, well, certainly people are prejudiced because they don't realize they're prejudiced. <laughs> like, not, not that there's any sort of system creating yeah. this prejudice. Cause it's like, even this, it's like, yeah, they just, they just need to perform in front of everybody and then they go, oh, wow. They're capable <laughs> of this. They just haven't yeah, been given their shot. It's like, yeah. Certainly did not happen for African-American performers who uh, sure did perform in Shirley Temple movies and didn't get any opportunity. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, so it, it's, it's not the perfect metaphor, but it's good for kids to be nice to each other and work hard, you know. I mean, this was a movie that initially from the outset was set up for success. Like, you mm-hmm. start looking at the cast and there's this great mixture of, like, you know, Scott Bakula, who was a Broadway performer. He sings his own songs. Yes. He's he's very and they're good, good. The songs are excellent. His they're songs are excellent. They're freaking Randy Newman yeah. post, uh, post yeah. Toy Story, right? So, like, they went to the best. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, the mm-hmm. singing voice of Sawyer, who's the female cat, is freaking Natalie Cole. Like, yeah. again, we're talking, mm-hmm. like, music mm-hmm. royalty. With Jasmine Guy as the non-singing voice. And I actually who's thought that that... Also Fantastic. That dichotomy worked really well of Jasmine Guy transitioning mm-hmm. into Natalie Cole. And the Natalie Cole songs, um, I'm not going to lie, I went on Spotify and liked a few songs <laughs> of the soundtracks. <laughs> I couldn't get them out of my oh head. Uh, I may or may not have made Big and Loud my theme song. And even though I understand it's <laughs> wow. sung by the villain, <laughs> it is certainly something I relate to and I like it. I relate um, to the fact that the villain has dimples because yes. <laughs> if anyone's seen me, like a photo of me, there's ginormous dimples that I'm rocking. <laughs> Totally, but I love the fact that you have this like mix of like again like modern people, Scott Bakula, etc. But then you've also got Hal Holbrook and Don Knotts and like mm-hmm. uh, Betty Lou Ger- Gerson, George Kennedy. Like these are like classic, classic actors. And although I don't feel that they're given enough to do, I wish there was more. They're yeah. definitely recognizable people that I'm like, okay, you really tried to get this great mix of like new and old, and there's something kind of for everybody. You also have the middle ground of actors, which I love, which is. Um, John Rice Davies, obviously best known for Indiana Jones. And then my favorite, Rene Aubergenois, who is a pretty small role, but he's like kind of the Frenchy guy. Um, I love him so much. Mm-hmm. Anything he's in, like just looking at this cast list, I'm like, oh man, these are all people. Even the ones who are like, who's that guy? And then I look at the photo, I'm like, of course it's that guy. Like it's. Yeah. Really remarkable. The, so the something I think the animators did really well that was pioneered by Disney in their renaissance is starting to really use um, reference 
uh, materials. So like uh, using divine for Ursula and yeah. making sure that like all those movements, things like that are very much divine, right? That wasn't, it was kind of done, but not 100% because they didn't have the time. They didn't have the budget to do that in a lot of animated movies. They were just kind of flying by the seat of their pants. Um, this here, they are very clearly modeling these characters on the actors. Like the Don Knotts turtle, <laughs> of course he's a turtle, right? Like that's yeah. what he's going to be. But the biggest thing is that Gene Kelly choreographed these dance numbers and these animated dance numbers are spectacular. And you see Gene Kelly mm-hmm. and classic Hollywood written all over them. Yeah, like he passes away in 96, right? I don't think I should have checked that. But um, so he's kind of, he, he's uncredited in some forms of this film and then credited in others, but he's officially choreographer consultant. So he would have been um, working on it in way pre-production, kind of like yeah. going over how to animate some of these dances. And I mean, they're pure Gene Kelly, like the character that Scott Bakula plays is just, it's it's a Gene Kelly character. It's a little bit of Danny uh, Kay, I think, mixed in as well. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, this is, this is his last film credit like that is remarkable um and it's important to point out i think that before this was warner brothers it was you know it's produced by turner animation so it's turner's company that was trying to Mm -hmm. get into animation and then eventually warner brothers buys turner as we know and some i'm probably getting this wrong but it gets subsumed by warner brothers and it feels like if it had just remained that independent sort of turner animation it would have been way bigger it really is that warner brothers bought this for other bought that company for other reasons and then were dropped this and was like whatever this is not why we want this so they even they when they got it they were actually like well we can't do something in the 30s and 40s let's update it to the 50s and they were like you understand this is an animation and we can't just do reshoots (laughs) and also yeah how far along they were you hear these weird things of people dropping in uh and it's like too late but like you say it was i think the thing that makes it work is it was set up so rock solid yeah. like you guys say like they they started and another thing is like yeah the the along with gene kelly they had this guy brian mckenty doing the art direction and he was uh, in charge of the beauty and the beast dance sequence which is like famous in animation for being like such an amazing and fluid dance it's sequence. beautiful so i feel like they yeah so they they like set up uh, a best of and and uh it's worth saying that like uh Mark Dindle was also at the time like he was a he was an animation effects guy Mm -hmm. so like this was his first shot to be a director but he was kind of considered on the cutting edge of uh, directing and and he's a Disney guy so he will then go on for Empire uh, the Emperor's New Groove which which is my favorite Mm -hmm. Disney movie like I'm not gonna say it's my favorite it is up there I watch I banged out that VHS and it's 2000 (laughs) right so I'm pretty old by that point but uh I loved it like just and I think it's the same style that you see in cast on dances there with getting Eartha Kitt to play one of the greatest comedian villainous with one of the greatest sidekicks of all time played by Patrick Warburton like the two of them together are so funny and yeah it's so I'm sorry I love that we'll talk about it eventually it's (laughs) worth it's worth saying as well that if you guys haven't ever seen uh Sting's wife's documentary, uh, Trudy Styles' documentary, The Sweatbox, no. about the development of Emperor's New Groove. It's very fascinating because, like, this is they're essentially kind of simultaneously in production. Emperor's New Groove starts in '94. This starts in '93, hmm. and Dindle was brought in to save the Emperor's New Groove because essentially, like, Pocahontas and Hunchback did so poorly. Yeah. Emperor's New Groove was this film called, I think, Empire of the Sun. Hmm. And it was a serious, like, Incan but story. But that's why, right? Because uh, the other two failed because they were too serious and too dark. Well, they tried to take I, it in the wrong direction. I was going to say, if you right? make a film about someone with a disability and don't know what you're doing, and then make a film about um, cultural racial genocide, also you sure. don't know what you're yes. doing. It's <laughs> not pretty yeah. equal box Gargoyles office. that sang and danced. What more do you want? Sure, sure. Uh, and the guy from Murphy Brown. But yeah, sorry, Kingdom of the Sun was what it was called. And this different guy, Roger Allers, was directing it. And, and then eventually they brought in Mark Dindle. I think, honestly, it's very hard to tell the timelines because they're quite simultaneous. Uh, but I believe that they probably saw uh, Cats Don't Dance, yeah, to be honest, and brought in Dindle. Yeah. Or at least that bolstered him because eventually Roger Allers left the project entirely and Dindle essentially rewrote yeah. it to be what you know as Emperor. Critics Andrew. loved this. Like I went, I went through yeah. some of mm-hmm. the reviews from 97, even 98. Um, some people weren't seeing it till 98. Um, this was universally beloved and had, I mean, if you look at the nominations and the wins for the Annie Awards, this is a 
a top one, likely because yeah. Disney's in a not a slump, but just sort of kind of sta- in stasis. I would say this um, is the tail end of the Disney Renaissance. This yeah, is kind of like yeah. the yeah the end of yeah. this. Yeah. But um, yeah. this was you know people really this really resonated with critics, and that makes sense, right? You hope I don't think it's true today, but you hope that most film critics have some. Hollywood history or some film history so it makes sense that you're just kind of feeding them their their life food like something that they really love like Greta Garbo references and all that but uh yeah it just it's such a such a missed opportunity for Warner Brothers to have not properly released this and I will be honest I watched this through the Toronto Public Library it is not on streaming services perhaps that will change there's been conversations but we haven't even seen this be offered to us by warner brothers so there's got to be some you know and we'll hopefully be able to change that but um as hollywood suite i mean but yeah this is still in 97 underseen and yet there's a lot of great articles that are coming out um of people in our generation slightly younger saying like this was their jam in in the late 90s this deserves absolute like admiration why is this not more widely viewed and I I love that we're you know I love that on this podcast we get to talk about films like that and I love as a 38 year old I get to discover children's films um, from all kinds of generations and decades that I didn't know about that would have been my jam back then. Well, I want to talk a little bit about what happened with Warner Brothers and why this didn't do particularly well, what the botched release was. Uh, Cam, I know you did a bit of research on this. Do you want to get into it a little bit? I think that generally Warner Brothers animation was more concerned with television, is what it is. Because like you mentioned, uh, Iron Giant is also them. Yeah, this feels like Animaniacs, which I think is is kind of fair, is why also I think people kind of... And Tiny Toons. Maybe are like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Darla Dibble is honestly, very much Elmira Duff. Like, it's really yeah, similar to that character. But like, and the, the weird thing is, is that that's not a knock on this movie. It's actually more praise to their television content at the time, I think. And I think, yeah, if you think about the other two big features, which are Mask of the Phantasm, the Batman movie, and Iron Giant, it's like, those are amazing. But yeah, they also are kind of, I guess, tied... And just, yeah. But anyway, what I know is that they were very inspired by American Tale because American Tale, not because it's because of any of the uh, creative aspects, but because it made so much gosh darn money. Uh, and that's partially why Warner Brothers wanted this animation division. But they never seemed to commit. Uh, you probably know more than me. But I they just do. never seemed to commit. So here's what <laughs> like, happened. You probably know more than me. I do. No, I, I don't know why you go. threw it to me, to be honest, Becky. I well, did a little. I, I want to give you a chance. And honestly, you okay. usually, you're like, the, you're corners of research cam sometimes you find like these little crannies that I'm like sorry where did you find that also you know how to use the way back machine which I get confused lost sure. to need my mother <laughs> all I've got all I've got is the sweat box everyone should watch the sweat box it's a great documentary I'm so in okay so this is what happened so they were this was always my question of like why didn't anyone really try to compete with Disney Renaissance like era stuff seeing that there was now money to be made in animated features and the answer is Warner Brothers did and what they did was they actually put all of their money all their resources and everything into a movie called Quest for Camelot. And Quest mm. for Camelot was, as you most people have not heard of it, there's no goodwill or good feelings towards it, with the yeah. exception of there's some posters of it in a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, also Warner Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Weird little piece of trivia. But it looks like a Disney movie. It's got music, like the kind of soar- soaring orchestral kind of music like a Disney movie. The characters are very Disney movie-esque. They were trying to be Disney and they were trying to follow that formula. Guess what? That didn't work. Um, what they should have been doing was putting their money into these movies like The Iron Giant, etc., and releasing those. And they had a huge success with Space Jam, which, of course, was the, the kind of stuff that people were expecting from Warner Brothers. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the interesting thing to me is that there's actually footage of Brad Bird, who would later go on to be like a Disney directorial superstar doing The Incredibles, things like that. And there's all this footage of him just like going off about how they're not Disney. Screw Disney. Disney is all like sunshine and rainbows. We're Warner Brothers. We're violent. We're nasty. We can do all these like difficult concepts that kids can handle, we'll but nobody ever an throws at them. You. Exactly. Yes. And so, and he really understood what the difference was and Warner Brothers didn't. Warner yeah. Brothers was like, we have mm. to be Disney to compete with Disney. Yeah. And that was the biggest issue that happened here and why they failed because they kept oh, totally. missing what their what their strengths actually were. I think that's spot on. Uh, yeah. And I think that they were behind the ball because we just talked about Pocahontas and Hunchback and Quest for Camelot is quite a lot like those. Yeah. It's those the serious... Uh, like there's some music but it's not fun mm-hmm. it's not even little mermaid fun which is not that fun and, and the other thing to point out is along with warner brothers many other studios at the time had a branch 
where they usually did a one-off that didn't connect that hard and gave up. So Don Bluth was with Fox doing Anastasia in 1997. Yeah, no, yeah. There's, some love, there's some love for that film. It's probably I like his Anastasia. biggest hit. Yeah. Uh, but at least that one is like Fox saying, listen, we have this old movie that you could make an animated version of. And apparently Fox thought for a long time about that, like our old properties. What could you turn into animated movies, which is a kind of a different approach. And then DreamWorks, uh, their first release is Ants, which is, is weird enough and probably what kept them afloat because it's CGI. Ants is also but an F you by Katzenberg because Katzenberg had just oh, sure. transferred over to DreamWorks from Disney where he has mm. a notoriously uh, bad blood with Eisner yeah. hole falling out. I think we talked about that in an early episode. Remind me, is Ants Woody Allen? That's the one. Yes. Oh. yes. And Sylvester Woody Allen and Sylvester Stallone. Sharon oh. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I but, saw that. But yeah. To, to, yeah. To, to their credit, I don't think Ants was meant to really compete with Disney. Their Disney competition is Prince of Egypt, which is, is yeah. well, pretty good. Well, he knew that Bugs Life was coming out, so he was like, we need our own to take some of the money from that yes. movie. So it was meant to yeah. undercut Bugs Life. That's why that, what that yes. came out. Yes. Explain why B movie then exists. Because I mean, Jerry Seinfeld, Seinfeld gets to do what he wants. Jewish yeah. neurotic comedians as bugs. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, this is also, it's worth saying that it's Katzenberg, Geffen, and Spielberg. And, and I mean, Spielberg made his money with yeah. Jewish history and an American tale. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that's partially why they did Prince of Egypt. I mean, it's just fun. Yeah, I don't, it's, it's worth a watch is, is what I would say. I, I, I'm somebody who just watched it for the podcast. I've never seen it before. But yeah, I think especially if you have... Like I say, you shouldn't say, I, I never never want to say that it's like Animaniacs or whatever, or Warner Brothers cartoons in a bad way, because I love that there's little, like, you see celebrities like they were in Merry Melodies, yeah. you know? There's real celebrities in the background, which is fun, and it's, it's you know, it's a tight 72 minutes or something. It's in and out. I will say, I, I found the songs a lot less catchy. I think they're good. I just don't, they're kind of slipped out of my mind, but... uh yeah, I think it's silly. It's silly fun. And I, I would definitely put it on in front of a kid because I think that they'll really enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, I think it's a rare case of 25-year-old animation that you could put in front of a child and not be mm-hmm. worried about racial caricatures or issues yeah. with trans. Like, it, it really is like, oh, it's, it's probably just by luck and pure-heartedness of these writers, but they didn't do anything mean. I mean, it's meanest to the Shirley mm. Temple character, which I'm like, fair, sure. the blonde, curly-cued, <laughs> dimpled, megastar, turns out to be a monster? Like... Yep, let's. That, yeah. We that all tracks. watched What's the Matter with Helen. We all know the <laughs> truth. Yeah. I thought about that film actually while I, watching this quite yeah. a bit. She's she's delightfully evil yes. too. Like she's pretty good, and they definitely do like weird, you know, Cruella Deville faces for her. And it yeah. kind of reminded yeah, me know. of Kate um, Blanchett's character in Nightmare Alley, which I realize maybe not everyone has seen yet, <laughs> but like evil for just pure evil's sake, no character motivation, <laughs> like just. Just the embodiment of maliciousness, and I, and also a similar haircut, which I really appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that's where we have to move to our next, uh, our next film, and of course, this is Alicia's new favorite, championing it. Everyone must see it. That's coming up after the break. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We often refer to movies as being live-action cartoons to describe their wacky antics. But I genuinely can't think of a movie more like a Sylvester and Tweety cartoon in real life than the series of disastrous vignettes that occur in the movie Mouse Hunt. I saw this one as a tween in the theater when it first came out, and I remember thinking... 
who is this for? Watching it as an adult, I have exactly the same question, but I certainly have more respect for the escalating disaster sequences that are executed to perfection. Let's talk Mouse Hunt Alicia plot. Mm -hmm. Let's go. Yeah, I mean, the plot is basically there in the title. Uh, (laughs) It's a hunt for a mouse. So these two brothers, um, their father, played by William Hickey, who was actually on his deathbed, uh, dies and leaves them his string factory. These are the Munts string factory. And, you know, the whole estate's basically bankrupt. They do find out that there is this house that their father owned that they didn't know about. This dilapidated house in the country. Um, and because they both, for whatever reasons, one got kicked out by his wife, the other um, kind of led to the mayor dying by choking on a cockroach. <laughs> yes. Long story. Um, they they need somewhere to sleep. So they're like, oh, whatever. We, we know that this house is available. We're going to go sleep there. And it's, you know, falling apart. It's, 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 it's insane. What they eventually find out, though, is that it was built by a very famous architect, and it's considered the lost masterpiece of this architect. Kind of think like Frank Lloyd Wright, but much more like Art Nouveau, um, less like craftsman. And they decide that this is the best way to make money because it could be worth literally tens of millions of dollars. They're going to restore it. What they're up against, though, is the mouse that has, um, it's a singular mouse. It it is a mouse. I mean, mouse is, it's not mice hunt. It's mouse hunt. Who's been using this, this nice house as his, as his, as his residence. He lives in one of the walls. He has a very nice, what looks to be a comfortable bed for a mouse built out of a sardine can. Um, and he, he much like I think many of us have felt when we've been renovicted from our homes in Toronto, (laughs) he's not going to stand for it. He's going to fight no. for his house. And the mouse doesn't talk. This is a combination of um, Jim Henson creature effects, uh, like puppet, and a bit of CGI. And we can talk about if the C- it's 97 CGI, so not so good. But when it is a, a, a Muppet, it is absolutely adorable. Think kind of like the witches, um, those really great mouse effects we're getting in this film. Yeah. And unlike Mickey Mouse, he, you know, he has this determination that I, I really am fond of. And um, he puts uh, Nathan Lane, who plays one of the brothers, and, um, oh my gosh, remember his name? Lee, pa- Lee, Lee Evans. Evans. Lee Evans. Thank you, Lee Evans. Ripped. I did not expect Lee Evans to be that ripped. You do see him <laughs> naked at one point. I was like, oh my God. But yeah. um, Lee Evans and Nathan Lane, just through sheer Bruegel-esque hell. Um, and there are some amazing special effects. Se- it's, actually, I shouldn't say special effects sequences. All practical, where like they've set up in the kitchen... I would say a solid 500 mouse traps. That scene is spectacular. It's amazing. It's like the the greatest yeah. Rube Goldberg kind of mouse applied to a mouse hunt um, effect. And the mouse, you know, is going. He somehow manages to like go all around the traps to get this one piece of cheese, I think it is, or cherry, and then jump up on the on the fridge and just drop the cherry pit so that it sets off all the traps and like they're just covered. They're so much here that I'm both like this is the most fantastic potential for a Triscuit commercial I've ever seen but then also <laughs> it harkens back to Charlie Chaplin there's a great sequence where um Nathan Lynn's character meets two Belgian hair models which are ridiculous that's the most like 30s yes, thing to me is like where the hell did they come up with and it makes me like respect a, a strange writer filmmaker Adam Rifkin for writing a very 30s idea yeah, yeah but it, there's there's poetry in this film and I think as much as Becky you're like who is this for as an adult I am rooting for the mouse but I'm also happy mm. when this film has a happy ending where like you know, the, both the brothers are trying to kind of reconcile with each other, reconcile with their father's legacy, which is 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 they're on the kind of the fritz with. Um, there's a lucky piece of string that they're fighting over, which is mm-hmm. so Looney Tunes. Um, it's kind <laughs> of like Money Pit meets Chaplin meets Looney Tunes, and I don't know. I I feel like that that is a winning formula. This and unlike Cats Don't Dance, this had a huge promotional campaign. This opened second behind Titanic. 
Which is wild. Mm. This was. I mean, I'm sure there was like a money. gap. <laughs> yes. This was yeah, money. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It makes sense to me yeah. because Titanic is an adult film. It's violent. Like, lots of kids yeah. saw it. Don't get me wrong. But there wasn't much in 97 for just like families who were going to see a matinee during the Christmas holidays. Sure. Yeah. The, the holidays in general. I shouldn't say Christmas. That's um, why we saw this. And yep. this is a Christmas film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I get it. I get why this just raked in millions and millions of dollars. Um, even though the the reviews are pretty negative and still to this day kind of negative, even though I think there's a huge reclamation that's happening with Mouse Hunt yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, this is Gore Verbinski. He, this is his first feature film. He got this because the script existed. Um, you're saying the Adam Rifkin script, which must have been really phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And he got this because uh, Katzenberg at DreamWorks, uh, and this is the first family film that DreamWorks produced, was like, Get me the guy who made the frog <laughs> commercial for Budweiser at the most recent yeah. Super Bowl. Do you remember? Because when I read this, I was like, oh my God, I remember oh, yeah. that frog commercial. Oh, it was huge. It was huge. Yeah. It's like that was Budweiser frogs and was up were huge. Yeah. I mean, Gorbinski also lots of, lots of, not the music videos you would think of, but like Monster Magnet yeah. and like no effects music video. Like there's a certain 90s aesthetic that is Gorbinski music videos, especially for like pop punk era which is kind I of I didn't wild. know this about him and you know I, I'm a big fan of Rango and you know those early um, Pirates of the Caribbean films are fantastic and it's like oh I see Gore Verbinski's trajectory here with a brilliant mm. ad campaign to this film which made so much money for DreamWorks um, on a pretty reasonable budget to one of the biggest Disney franchises of all time like I, you're missing. Hey, hey, yeah. hey! You are missing the most successful Japanese to English horror translation, which is The Ring, which uh, is still it would just still I really. I, mean, I completely. I forgot it's, that it's, he did that. Wow. It is worth saying that that like I know you guys don't like to muck around in the uh, nightmare that is uh, film Twitter. No, but he he has he there is a, a fairly good reclamation because I, I think he's considered quite a like vulgar auteur because yeah. the truth is when you see a Gore Verbinski movie you know it's a Gore Verbinski yeah. movie as much as I think some people write him off as kind of like a, an amalgamation of Barry Sonnenfeld and say, Tim Burton. There's elements yeah. of Barry Sonnenfeld. There's and Tim Burton. something yeah, and I think he actually worked with Barry yes. Sonnenfeld quite a he bit did. but i mean barry sonnenfeld is a is a great cinematographer so why not steal from him uh and why not steal the great production design of tim burton but yeah there he he doesn't have a ton of movies he's also seemingly maybe in director's jail he hasn't made anything since 2016 since the very bizarre i cure for wellness uh and yeah so he's like it's Do weird he's one of those guys that's like he would have from pirates of the caribbean oh. Like, I, mean, I don't even know. Like, he, Name a number because he's one of these. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> he's one of these guys that's like he's in director's jails, but likely richer than God. And likely is <laughs> like what jail? What? Where? Where am I? Yeah. <laughs> like who cares? With but his yeah, beautiful yeah, he's, pool, surrounded by many yeah. beautiful humans. And, and I mean, fine. yes, he does. He does weird swings like the Mexican and the Weatherman. Which I like the Weatherman. I, the Me- I don't think anyone loves the Mexican, but yeah, the Weatherman has has a great cult I following. I believe our, and, and yeah, our like, um, yeah. Vice President Julie Camaria is a huge so. fan of the Weatherman. Yes. Hold yes, on, is yes. the Mexican the one where James Gandolfini listens to Julia Roberts pee? No, I think so. No. Yes, it is. It, yes, it's yes, Gandolfini it is, it is and Julia Roberts at least. Oh, Julia Roberts. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yes, yes. Maybe. It's the Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts. <laughs> yes, it's just totally the movie. Uh, yes, okay, all right, yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I don't I know what other movie apparently. he'd listen to or pee. But yeah, anyway, so it's, a, it's like an interesting thing, because I think people, uh, you know, he's up there with, like, uh, homemade Colette Sarah as, like, a guy <laughs> who's making mainstream movies that people are like, this guy kind of has style that I'm into. I mean, for a family film, there's a line where Nathan Lane is describing the mouse, and he says he's Hitler with a tail. And I'm just <laughs> Well, I mean, I also think this has the the weird '90s. There's a lot of sex talk too. Like these, these these guys do have sex and are horny. Yes. Well, and Vicky Vicky Lewis, who people will remember from News uh, News Radio, who's one of my favorite parts of News Radio, that cursed cursed show. Mm -hmm. But I mean, she's fantastic in Mm -hmm. this, and she plays the line between like gold digger, but like sexy and like Mm -hmm. funny. Like she knows exactly what movie she's in. Gold digger, but like. I get it. She's been, you know, holding down the fort in this marriage, making all the (laughs) money with this, like, total bumbling idiot. And she's just like, God damn it, do something right. You you understand 
everyone around these guys. Exactly. These guys are like, like Nathan Lane is just like evil, yeah. and Lee Evans is like the worst bumbling loser. I love the fact in, in a that they way. describe in the the film description of this and the tagline they're referred to as stumble bums, and that is a word <laughs> yeah, we need to bring it, back because all, it all you can me. say, yeah. I mean, it, this is like the the cast is crazy. I love that Mario Cantone is playing a tough guy yeah. who's no, normally known for his like broad gay acting. Yeah. Okay, uh, that's yeah, Christopher Walken. Yeah, we obviously have to talk sure. about he yeah. showed up i think for two days on this and they put him on the wow. they put him on the promotional trail being like i was on set for two days i thought the mouse was cute and it's Ooh. like okay that was so my he Christopher plays Walken, the exterminator that they bring in he's incredibly serious very scary there is some physical comedy here with walken <laughs> and he's he he obviously <laughs> the mouse wins let's just say the mouse wins and they're they're carrying <laughs> him off into the ambulance and there is um just gibberish coming out of his mouth horse but it's so so walking like it's only walking could do this performance covered in blood like as much as this is a family film there is some real gore and some real again who is this for that's what i keep you keep being like as much as this is a family movie here's all the sex here's all the wonder here's a man eating half of a cockroach maybe it is more of like a tween film like it's for kids that are on Uh, that cusp you know I do think that if you think about the 90s slapstick renaissance, which I I think can be like credited to both Zucker Abrams and Zucker and Home Alone. But if you think of stuff like Baby's Day Out and Beethoven and Problem Child, those are weirdly mixed movies that tend to have a a Charles Grodin or a John Ritter (laughs) trying to have sex with a hot lady (laughs) while everything else is happening, while a dog pulls all the food off the table. Like, it's, they're they're weird. And and then there was that SNL movie boom that is pretty slapstick too, where it's like, I think it's just, it it, it is what it is at the time. And yeah, it's, it's, in some ways it's, it, I I think it, it stands out as still odd, but in other ways I'm like, that is what those movies are like. You know, like Bean is the same year. Oh, you know my love. You know my love. Sure. I love it. Sandra yeah. O's Hollywood debut. I was going to say Sandra O's being great. But it, I just remember Bean having like a horny streak oh, yeah. and a weird violent streak. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good yeah, point. There's, there's also, I think, a certain element to just come back to Bean. There's, I can't put my mm-hmm. finger on it, but there's a Britishness to this film. And, and Gore Verbinski's not British. Which is also why Lee Evans is there, which I was like, I went back and yeah. I looked and I was like, Lee Evans, like you haven't heard much of him since. And he, this but was a his big, big year f- for him because it was Fifth Element as well. Oh, yeah. And then something about Mary yeah. coming out yeah. uh, afterwards. But yeah, Lee Evans is now uh, retired, actually. Oh. He's only recently come out of retirement to do a few plays. But yeah, so the weird thing is, is Lee Evans, massive stand-up comedian in the UK. Yeah. He uh, has this sense. brief, holly- massive A-list Hollywood career for essentially three, four movies. Uh, I think returns to essentially be the highest grossing comedian in the United Kingdom. Uh-huh. He, if you look, he has like record-breaking sales of DVDs and no stuff idea. in the, in the 20, 2000s. I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. Okay, I, actually I watched didn't a couple of his clips and he was British. actually really funny. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, oh, yeah. he, he yes. does a great American accent. Yeah. That's part of it. He mostly so yeah. plays yeah. Americans like, in movies. Yeah, there's so, so the, the something British is Lee Evans himself. But yeah, he's a he's and he's a great physical comedian. I think that's part of what his act is. But yeah, the interesting thing is he he retired to like spend more time with his family, and now it seems like he's just kind of coming out of it. That's cool. what happens when your kids leave the house, and you're like, well, back to A list movies. I, See you in a bit. I, I, yeah, I think it's also uh, like what happens when you are also richer than God. Right. Lee Evans. It's also like you're like, is he in actor jail? Oh no, he's just also very rich. Yeah, and if, can his, hang out. if you know that stand up comedy, if that those are the highest grossing. CDs. Mm. I notice I use the term CD. Um, then yeah, yeah, he's sorry DVD rolling, DVD. rolling in money. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. And. In 2008, his show was the highest-selling Christmas DVD in the UK, <laughs> only to be surpassed by his next show in 2014. Jeez. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. You know that got passed around the year before. Um, I want to yeah. bring us back to the look of the movie, because I think that's the one thing that like I can really anchor onto. Like, we were talking about mm-hmm. how he's kind of like got Barry Sonnefeld. He's got um, Tim Burton, and obviously using William Hickey makes it very Tim Burton. Um, but sure. the thing that he talks about is Delicatessen and Jean-Pierre Jouinet being the look of this, and no Knowing that and then watching this, Delicatessen is one of my favorite movies. We'll be talking about Jean-Pierre Jouinet later when we talk about Alien 4. Next episode, um, but- I think. 
next yeah next mm-hmm. episode um but uh this knowing that and looking at this i'm like 100% the weird angles the up shooting the like mm-hmm. um close ups sure. on facial reactions like 100% this is there's, so there's influenced also a by look Shwine. to the house that's very like city of lost children where you sense yeah. that the wallpaper glue is toxic like there's there's a yes. haze sure. or like <laughs> yes. um Yes. A psychotropic sort of feeling to the set where it's not just like a money pit, a house falling apart or a house that looks like the house from Casper, the friendly ghost, the movie version. It, it is something that this house has its own dimension and this own, it almost mm. feels like a vortex and the mouse is in control. And I find myself completely captivated by this house. Um, I'm also someone who lives in a house from this era that is very quickly mm. falling apart so i relate with very bad landlords so i completely relate yeah. to what's going on here um yeah there is that i hadn't thought about Jeanne, but i think you're right becky there is an element there of the subversive kind of mm, it's like um a dystopia this film isn't yeah. meant to be a dystopia yeah, but there's yeah, something totally. with this house that's dystopian well it's, it's like also everywhere they go is like filthy yeah. uh, which is kind of interesting there's like dirt the production designer is Linda Descana, who I, I looked up and I was like, Did this, this must have won awards for this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And, and it didn't. And it surprised me. But yeah, it's I find it very interesting. I also the really like when. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So weird. <laughs> uh, I really loved the uh, Nathan Lane talked a lot about it. And it's also interesting to like point out that Nathan Lane was like he was kind of like the heir apparent to Robin Williams yeah. at the time because he'd done Lion King and he'd, he'd done uh, Birdcage and was so yeah. huge and could probably do whatever he wanted. And there's multiple Lion King he... references to this with Hakuna and Matata. Oh, yeah, <laughs> which is funny. very strange, and but fun. And, and yeah, but he, so he said he loved it because to him, he describes it as Laurel and Hardy directed by the Coen brothers, which oh, I feel like wow. actually kind of works. Yeah. And it weirdly, if you guys, have you guys seen Crime Wave? Yes. That weird Coen's reign? No, same year. It's very I hard. To, one of them yeah. is Crime Wave and one is Crime Wave. It's a failure, I will say. I think that this is better than Crime Wave. Most Hunt is like a better version of Crime Wave. But it's uh, it's like the Raimi and the Coens working together and it's a slapstick noir, essentially. Hmm. Uh, and it, it's very similar, but it's interesting because I think this movie pulls it off a little better. I love because it's oh, yeah. No, no, go ahead. No, I was like because it's like about a mouse <laughs> instead of humans <laughs> killing each other. Well, I love that Lane got the script and he was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Mostly because I look like I would be miserable shooting this because I'm a miserable mm. person where miserable things are happening to me. And yeah. Katzenberg called him up personally and said, I want you to meet Gore Verbinski. And he goes, Who? He goes, You know the guy who does the Budweiser commercial with the frogs? He goes. <laughs> Yes, of course I know it. This is a direct yeah. quote. The the Budweiser frogs, I uh, sure, I've seen that commercial. Not since Orson Welles has there been such a visionary. Okay, bring yeah. me to Verbinski. He, I know it's meant to be glib, but it's not wrong in terms of the commercial yeah. world. Like, if those commercials yeah. were... Uh, people had those shirts, I Girl, remember. Yeah, I, like had, Bud, oh, I had the froggy shirt, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Right, you gotta get that back. But yeah, it's. I mean, I love that. And yeah, it's kind of interesting because... But at the same time, you really get, like, this is a technological marvel. It's and dumb. I think that that's a thing Gord Verbinski is great for. And like you were talking about the visual stuff. Like, he's a very, he does jokes with the camera, which I think is a very lost art nowadays. <laughs> and, and, like, even when you talk about, they were talking about the mice. They needed 60 mice. Uh, they bred them to the specificity of <laughs> Gord Verbinski. He had a look he wanted. Oh so the, mi- the mice, because I guess they reproduce fast enough. The guy's like, oh, I can get you a mice that, mouse that looks like that. So he bred 60 mice that look the same like that's crazy yeah. and and to pull that off at all is crazy yeah. the most impressive bit is watching all the moving parts and thinking about how the thought process would have had mm. to have been before it so you think about the moment where as you're talking about the mouse in his little like sardine tin can just Damn. for him to like to look like this mouse is climbing into this little tin can in his little house that he's decorated he has a little so calendar a and like things on the he wall has a sense yes, of he wants to go to Hawaii <laughs> yeah he's a little <laughs> poster that's right <laughs> it totally but like, you think of that like you watch the mouse go in and like all like the cuts that they're doing which they have to do obviously because mm. getting the mouse to do what they need it to do trick wise but then when it starts to like run through the halls and you're watching the the nails go yeah. through like it's oh. wild the nail I mean, that is also, insane. 
yeah. that nail gun is crazy because it's obviously seamless. Sometimes it's CGI. Yeah. Sometimes it's an animatronic mouse head. Yeah. Sometimes it's a mouse that's trained, and it's pretty seamless. I agree. Yeah. For ninety seven, like looking at something like Alien mm. Three. Well, like Alien Three being the first like CGI kind of dog, mm. it looks which is it's atrocious. Rough. It's rough. And yeah. yes, Alien Four next episode mm. Resurrection. We're talking about that mix of animatronics and CGI, and like how bad the CGI looks because the animatronics look amazing. I'm pretty impressed by this film, by Mouse Hunt, like in terms of, you know, it's not the same budget as, well, maybe it was, there must have been a high budget on this. I can't remember. I mean, Katzenberg. There must have been, yeah. Because this is, this started a bidding war. So basically like 20th Century Fox was in the bid, Warner Bros. was in the bid, Disney was in the bid, and Katzenberg, who had just left Disney um, and was, you know, now firmly with DreamWorks, was like, I'm going to fuck with all these dudes and I highlight dudes because they were all dudes. Um, and like drive up the bidding like crazy, like as though it's you know a house in Rosedale, and just like inflate the price <laughs> and then buy it because <laughs> I can. And uh, are you ready for the yes. numbers? I have the numbers. Okay, so thirty-eight million dollar budget. That's low. It's- I mean, so Alien Resurrection is seventy-eight. So this that's half. Yeah, so th- that's impressive. Worldwide gross, just theatrically, a hundred and twenty-two million. Yeah, and if you look at it probably now, because I, I I know much like the Alien movies we're talking about, the DVD sales on this and rentals and things like that. Family probably films, enormous. Family films at Blockbuster are, you know, this was probably more mm-hmm. in the 200 million range on a 38 investment. Pretty, I mean, this would have probably been excerpted somehow for television for airlines. I'm so curious to see what they cut out of that. And there's a lot of boobs mm. in this film for yes. its rating. But uh, <laughs> Again, but that's what I was saying. These 90s movies, they loved boobs. Boobs and big hair. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think that's why, where we need to end this episode. So Cameron Maitland, thank you so much for joining us once again. Oh, thank you guys. And yeah, I mean, check out, like I say, uh, Trudy Styles. The Sweatbox has technically been purchased and suppressed by Disney. But, uh, you know, Google around and you might be able to find it. I am looking for this right now because it sounds great. <laughs> thank you. Up my alley. Alicia Fletcher, was this everything you'd hoped for? It was really fun. And one thing we haven't mentioned, and this is so important, is that Mouse Hunt is coming to Hollywood Suite. Yay! And you can watch it on Hollywood Suite around the time that this episode is going to air. Um, and that means I got my way. So <laughs> someone, someone finally indulged me. I had to, you know, lose some battles to win this one. It's the most important battle. Um, and I will, I have one more thing. I'm not, I don't want the studio to sue me or anything, but like, if you turn your TV to only be black and white, which I have done for this film, <laughs> incredible. Watch this. Like first, if you've never seen it, watch it the way it's meant to be seen on Hollywood Suite. Then if you have the right TV, Turn all the saturation down and make it black and white. And holy moly, it is it is the Orson Welles. <laughs> like, this you know, feels like your like dark side of the moon meets the Wizard of Oz kind <laughs> yeah. of moment Maybe. here. Alicia, thank you so much for bringing Thanks, this to Becky. us. Thank you. All right. And you can join us next week where we're headed to the place where no one can hear you scream. However, there's going to be a lot of screaming on these spooky spaceships. We're looking at Alien 4 Resurrection and Event Horizon. And we'll have special guest Robin Citizen, Ph.D. with us. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today featured Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kamaria. Creative consultant was Ryan Maines. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. <laughs>